podcast has bad words. <laughs> You're listening to The Minimalist. This is The Maximal. I'm here with Ryan Nicodemus. What's and up, patrons? Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is here. Now, my wife and my father-in-law are both really big RFK fans for all of your environmental work. Mm. And people often ask us, you know, when we talk about minimalism, we're talking about living an intentional life with less, that usually starts with less stuff, but also there's less waste. And so there's this big overlap. People often ask me and Ryan whether or not we got into this whole minimalism thing to save the environment. And the honest answer is no. Initially, that wasn't the reason. That wasn't the impetus of simplifying our lives. But... What we realized, it was a beautiful side effect of if you consume less, you actually produce less waste. Mm. Now, we've got a bunch of listener questions. Our show is a listener-driven show. Before we dive into the listener questions, though, I thought, Bobby, maybe you could tell us about your work at the Waterkeeper Alliance. I was, until very recently, the president of the Waterkeeper Alliance. Waterkeeper Alliance is the biggest water protection group in the world. Mm. The fir- and it's 350 groups right now in 46 countries. Each one has a patrol boat. They patrol local waterways, and then we sue polluters. So we're a law enforcement group, and we um, it was started in originally the first keeper was started in 1966 on the Hudson River, mm. and it was started by a blue collar coalition of commercial and recreational fishermen who mobilized to reclaim the river from its polluters. We have on the Hudson the oldest commercial fishery in North America. It's 350 years old. Wow. Many of the people that I represented for 40 years were came from families that had been fishing the river continuously since Dutch colonial times. Mm. It's a traditional gear fishery. They use the same fishing methods that were taught by the Algonquin Indians to the original Dutch settlers of New Amsterdam and then passed down through the generations. Um, they were principally catching an anadromous fish, striped bass, um, shad, sturgeon, herring, alewives, blue crab. Uh, they caught goldfish for the um, for that we have some of the biggest goldfish in the world in the Hudson, and they would catch them for the pet trade. Um, we had a very big caviar fishery in the Hudson. We have sturgeon, even today, sturgeon that are 11 feet long that have oh. 200 pounds of caviar in them. Um, in 1966, Penn Central Railroad began vomiting oil from a four-and-a-half-foot pipe in the Croton Harmon Rail Yard, which is 30 miles north of New York City on the east bank of the river. The oil blackened the beaches and made the shad taste of diesel, and it shut down the fishery because they couldn't sell, they couldn't sell the shad at the Fulton Fish Market in New York City. Wow. And all the people in Crotonville, Crotonville was kind of the enclave of the commercial fishery. It was also a very patriotic community. Virtually the entire male population had joined the Marines the day after Pearl Harbor. It had the highest mortality rate, or one of the highest mortality rates during World War II of any community in our country. And in 1966, when the Penn Central started blackening the beaches on the Hudson, all of the people in this village came together, 300 people, in the only public building in the town, which was the American Legion Hall, and they started talking about violence. Because they, had, they were almost all former Marines. They were combat veterans from World War II, from Korea, from Vietnam. 
they had come home to try to go back to the commercial fishery and they were shut down. Their livelihoods, their property values, um, everything about their lives relied on clean water. Mm. And they had been to the government agencies that are supposed to protect Americans from pollution, to the Corps of Engineers, the Conservation Department, the Coast Guard. They were given the bums rush, they were told. And they visited the Corps Colonel in Manhattan on 20 separate occasions. And he told them, ultimately, in exasperation, these are important people. They were begging him to do his job, mm. shut down the Penn Central Pipe. Yeah. And he finally told them, in exasperation, these are important people. Speaking of the Penn Central Board of Directors, we oh. can't treat them that way. Mm. And by this evening in March of 1966, virtually everybody in Crotonville had come to the conclusion that government was in cahoots with the polluters. And the only way they were going to reclaim the river is if they confronted the polluters directly. Mm. Somebody suggested that they put a match to the oil slick coming out of the Penn Central pipe and burn up the pipe. Somebody else said that they should roll a mattress up and jam it up the pipe and flood the rail yard with its own waste. Wow. Somebody else suggested that they float a raft of dynamite into the intake of the Indian Point power plant, which at that time was killing a million fish a day on its intake screens and taking food off their family tables. Wow. These people were, by the way, they weren't radicals, they weren't militants, they were people whose they were fed up. Yeah, they were fed up. Yeah. And they're, you know, they were people whose patriotism was rooted in the bedrock of our country. They weren't, they were mainstream people who were just working stiffs. But they saw that government was collaborating with large corporations mm. to steal something that they felt they owned, which, mm. which was the abundance of these fisheries and the purity of the water that their parents and grandparents had exploited for generations. And a guy, stood up in that meeting. He was a guy called Bob Boyle, who was the outdoor editor of Sports Illustrated magazine for 65 years. He was a combat veteran from uh, Korea. And he had, two years before, he had written an article about angling in the Hudson, this extraordinary article. Um, and in researching that article, he had come across this ancient navigational statute called the 1888 Rivers and Harbors Act. Mm. And that statute said that it was illegal to pollute any waterway in the United States. You had to pay a big penalty if you got caught, but also there was a bounty provision that said that anybody who turned in the polluter got to keep half the fine. Oh, wow. Mm. And he had called the libel lawyers at Time Magazine, which owns Sports Illustrated, and he knew them. And uh -huh. he said, and he sent them a copy of this law, and he said, is this still good law? And they sent him a memo back saying in 80 years it's never been enforced, but it's still on the books. Mm. And that evening when all these men and women were talking about violence, he stood up in front of them with a copy of the law in the memo, and he said, we shouldn't be talking about breaking the law. We should be talking about enforcing it. Right. And they resolved that night that they were going to start a group that was then called the Hudson River Fishermen's Association and later became Riverkeeper and Waterkeeper. And they were going to go out, track down, and prosecute every polluter on the Hudson. Eighteen months later, they collected the first bounty in United States history under this 19th century statute. They shut down the Penn Central Pipe. Mm. They got $2,000, which was a huge amount of money to, in 1968 in Crotonville, New York. There were two weeks of wild celebration in the town, and they used the money that was left over 
to go after Siba Geige, Tuck Tape, Standard Brand, American Cyanamid, the biggest companies in America, and they started minting money. Mm. In uh, 1973, they collected the highest penalty in the United States history against a corporate polluter. Mm. They got $200,000 from Anaconda Wire and Cable for dumping toxics in Hastings, New York, and they used that money to build a boat. They hired a full-time river keeper who was a guy called John Cronin, who was a commercial fisherman. And he hired me in 83 as the full-time attorney for the group. And after that, we sued about 500 polluters. And um, the Hudson quickly recovered. The Hudson today, you know, when I started working on the Hudson, it was still catching fire. It was oh dead God. for 20 mile stretches wow. north of New York City, south of Albany, zero dissolved oxygen. It turned different colors depending on what color they were painting the trucks at the GM plant in Terrytown. Today, it's the richest waterway in the North Atlantic. It produces more pounds of fish per acre, more biomass per gallon than any other waterway in the Atlantic Ocean That's north incredible. of the equator. It's the last major river system left in the Atlantic. It still has strong spawning stocks of all of its historical species of migratory fish. So it's Noah's Ark. It's a species warehouse. It's the last refuge for many of these animals that are going extinct elsewhere. And the miraculous resurrection of the Hudson began inspiring the creation of river keepers on other waterways. A lot of them were people like Rick Dove in North Carolina, who was another Marine, whose livelihood on the Noose River was wrecked by pollution from hog farms. But all over the country, on the West Coast, we began getting calls from surfers who were, you know, on Santa Monica Bay. We now have water keepers patrolling the waterways on almost all the major rivers on the East Coast, from the Bay of Fundy in Canada to Key Biscayne in Miami. Wow. And on the West Coast, on almost all the waterways, from... Um, from Prince William Sound and Cook Inlet in Alaska, the Fraser River in British Columbia, the Tuolumne and the, uh, the Willamette, the Columbia, San Francisco Bay, Santa Monica Bay, the Orange County coast, the Russian River, all the way down to Laguna San Ignacio in Mexico on the Baja Peninsula. So we have about 40 waterkeepers in Latin America. Um, and we're, you know, we are the fastest growing and the uh, and the biggest water protection group in the world. I love it. That's an incredible story. It's actually, to me, it amazes me how you can have, like Lake Erie, how bad it was, the Hudson River, how bad it was. When you leave it alone, mm-hmm. it kind of recovers faster than you would think. And yeah, there's a lot of resilience. Yeah. But there's also, you know, the Hudson, and this is kind of, pertinent to, to this podcast because although the fisheries and the ecology have recovered, the fish are still too toxic to eat. In the Hudson? Uh, yeah, because oh. we have PCBs that General Electric dumped in there for years, mm-hmm. and those are very, very persistent chemicals. Mm. And they're also very potent endocrine disruptors. They're carcinogenic. So, you know, although because a striped bass has 6,000 eggs. Mm. Oh, if 20% of them get wiped out from chemical contamination, you don't care because there's a lot left. Yeah. With human beings, if they eat those fish and get cancer, you know, it's a tragedy. Yeah. 
And so although the fish are in the, there are some species that we can eat, which are like the shad, which spend very, very little time in the river. They come up in the river in the springtime, they spawn, and then they leave. Mm. The striped bass do that too. They live in the Atlantic. They're what is called an anadromous fish. They are the fish that live in the salt water, but they have to come into the fresh water to spawn. Mm. Sturgeon, herring, alewives, salmon. Those are all anadromous fish. But we have a re- and the sturgeon, the striped bass are the big commercial fish. That's where people are really making money. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, we have a resident population of striped bass that never leave the river. Mm. And you cannot tell those from a striped bass that comes in in the springtime. And if you catch one of the ones that live in the river full time, you could be getting a huge bolus dose of PCBs. And so they've had to ban the whole fishery. Oh, bummer. We're going to talk about some controversial topics today. Um, you know, before we do that, though, I wanted to. We were having this discussion on the minimal. I thought maybe we could finish it up here. We were talking about chemicals and being bombarded and the amount of chronic disease that's going on in our society right now. And yeah, you know, it's something I've experienced. I'm, I'll be 40 this year. When I turned 27 is when I first started developing some weird sensitivities. And I didn't know what was going on. I developed seasonal allergies for the first time in my life, and they were crippling bad. I mean, they were and I, know, I always thought seasonal allergies w- were a lie. I thought people were just covering up actually being sick. <laughs> it, but there, I, all of a sudden, I felt these seasonal allergies. And then I started having these chemical sensitivities. And a couple of years ago, I developed an autoimmune disease. And my joints always hurt now. And I, I realized, like, oh, part of it has to do with the chemicals that I've you know, been bombarded with for the last four decades. But also, it has something to do with... Um, with our pharmaceutical industry uh, and, and being overprescribed. So I was prescribed for 13 years an antibiotic that destroyed my gut microbiome. A benign. Yeah, it was so supposedly benign, yeah. yes. And, and so uh, we've worked the last few years to get my health back on track, and we're certainly doing that, but I'm, I'm one of the 54% who uh, experienced some sort of you know, chronic debilitating uh, illness. And, and you know, I experience a lot of pain now. And what you mentioned was, was fascinating to me because, yeah, I, I don't know any old, older people, people older than me, because I'm an old person now. That's <laughs> weird. Uh, I don't know people older than me who, who have a whole lot of sensitivities, uh, at least not relative to, to the younger population. Hmm. So, Robert, maybe we could talk about that. Well, you know, <coughs> this... Uh, you know, it's interesting because of your relationship with advertising, which I know you guys are, um, you know, really aware of. But the other day, uh, Oprah did this, you know, really cringing conversation with um, with Margaret Merkel. Was what's, what's her name? Mer- Me- uh, Megan. I'm really Merkel. bad. What? Yeah. Megan Merkel, right? No, no. Oh, I don't. I don't realize that. <laughs> you guys are really worse than me. <laughs> Megan Markle, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> um, and and it was showed, it was rebroadcast in Britain. Mm. And one of the things that they, they, that went viral in Britain mm. was that the Brits, for the first time, saw that on American TV they were pharmaceutical advertisements, mm. yeah. which is illegal in every other country in the world except, except New Zealand, right? Except for New Zealand, yeah. 
And now, and by the way, we didn't start doing that until what, 80s or 90s, 97. right? Okay, uh, yeah. 97, FDA and FCC changed the, the rule. There had been a struggle about it, but it had been banned prior to that. And now it seems like no. the new rule is for every one commercial that's normal, <laughs> there needs to be 10 pharmaceutical commercials, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> and particularly on the evening news. Yeah. Which is dangerous, but they, the evening news is really where they're focused because no young people watch the evening news. It's all old people. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones with all the problems that, you know, need all these, like, old people's drugs. And so... Roger Ailes, who was the founder of Fox News, and I had this strange relationship with Roger Ailes because for me, he was like Darth Vader. Mm. <laughs> and he invented mm. Fox News. And yeah. when I was 18 years old, I spent three months in a tent with him in Africa. And I had this very weird relationship over time where, you know, well, you we can't got gloss long, over that. How, how did you end up three months? I, it, that's <laughs> a long story. But okay. that was right after he, um, he ran the Nixon campaign. And he had a, I guess he had a friend who had started a life insurance company in Africa. They had realized that there was no life insurance companies in Africa. And they thought this is a great new market. And they went, they they started one in Kenya. They brought a lot of money into the country to pay, pay claims. And they couldn't sell any policies because it was just completely, it was non, you know, it was against the culture. People who were saying, why would I buy presents for people after I'm dead? You know, mm, and uh, why, why do I care? So <laughs> he couldn't sell any policies and they closed up shop and they tried to leave. And the Kenyan government said, you can't leave. You bring the money in, you got to leave it here. And so Roger, they had gone to Roger Ailes and he had just, he had, um, produced the Merv Griffin show and he had mm-hmm. run Nixon's presidential campaign and they went to him and said you know can you come over here and make a TV show and you can spend all that money you know, making a TV series and then and that's how we'll get the money out of the country and he hired me to do a series that was called The Last Frontier, and I ended up spending the summer with him, and I really developed, he was a very, very funny guy, and really smart, you know, very paranoid and demented, but really, really smart, and really kind of fun to be around. And he, um, and so, and he kind of always took care of me on Fox News. Fox News was, exactly misaligned with me so all the people on Fox News they don't they don't like the environment or you know anything I'm saying but he made them have me on and so right. I was kind of a regular on a lot of the shows yeah it, it didn't align when I think of you and I think of Fox News is, is two people I don't or two a person an organization I don't think a lot is it true yeah. that you, you you sued Donald Trump twice I've sued him twice yeah. <laughs> Right. Of course, I love it. I love how you sued him twice, but it still didn't affect your professional no. relationship. <laughs> That's why. No, I still, you know, I, I still. This was long before he was president, obviously. Uh-huh. He was trying to build golf courses in the New York City watershed, where the drinking water comes from, and golf courses are not, and drinking water don't mix. You know, there's a lot of chemicals that you need to keep that gla- that monoculture. Mm-hmm. Alive, mm. and um, 
and so and that would have all ended up in New York City's drinking water. So and which would be uh, causing cancer and all kinds of other diseases. Whatever. Right? Yeah. You know, it's not good. It's a terrible thing to have next to drinking water. New York's water is unfiltered. So it goes right from the reservoir into your taps. Really? And yeah. And it's uh, um, it's the biggest unfiltered drinking water supply in the world. Mm. Wow. And because the water is very high quality for most of the system, not for part of the system, and this is way off topic, but part of the system is um, called the Croton system, which is has 105 sewage treatment plants in it. It's a very small system. And I actually sued New York City because I wanted to see where the Croton water was going, which neighborhoods. Mm. And they fought me for two years, and then on the courthouse steps, they literally sent, they handed me the distribution maps. They're not allowed to withhold that. Yeah. Uh, they mm. said it was national security. <laughs> and so, wow. <laughs> so, and they knew they were going to lose, and they gave it to me as we walked into court, literally. And what I just saw is they had all, all the neighborhoods that were getting the Catskill and Delaware waters, which are really high-quality water. That's why New York City pizza tastes so great, and New York City bagels, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Are, and it's, it's all attributed to this water supply. And then the Croton system, which is only 10% of the system, the neighborhoods that were getting those water were Harlem, the mm. South Bronx, Lower East Side, Hell's Kitchen. They were the poorest neighborhoods in the wow. city. Mm-hmm. And that's where they were sending the bad water. And there was one in this kind of sea of darkness on the on the Upper East Side where, you know, the dark, the Croton system was painted dark on the map. It was this one little tiny, like, it looked like a single house that was getting the good water from the Catskill system. And we had to get out a magnifying glass and look at it, and it was Gracie Mansion. So the mayor was getting the good water, but everybody who lived around him was oh getting the bad God. water. Yeah, it's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a parody of corruption. <laughs> Dude, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Anyway, um, Roger Ailes told me, he said, look, I can't let he w- I was asking him to come on and talk about vaccines. Uh-huh. And he said, I can't let you do it because, um, he said, for my evening news division, 70% of the revenues during non-election years for some of the shows is coming from pharmaceutical. And he said, typically on the evening news, there's about 22 ad space slots. And on average, 17 of those are pharmaceutical. Wow. So, God. 1997, they changed the rule and they allowed direct-to-consumer advertising for pharmaceutical companies for the first time in history. There's only two countries in the world that allow that. And one is New Zealand, the other is the U.S. Why does New Zealand do it? That seems so odd. I I don't know why they did it. I don't Mm. know. New Zealand is a a very funny country. It's really interesting. It has... There's a lot about New Zealand that's incredibly admirable. It was the first nation in the world to allow um, women's suffrage. Mm-hmm. It has a very interesting history with the Maori tribes. Been different. It was a different kind of colonialism because the Maoris actually asked to be colonized. Mm. And no other country had asked that before, but they wanted to. And the reason for that, and this is way off topic, bud. Let's do it. (laughs) The whaling industry 
was in, at that point, was in the South Pacific, and they were using the northern end of New Zealand as a whaling port. And the Maori is a very warlike tribe, and they were all living in these fortress villages, and they were fighting with each other and killing each other. Mm. And um, when the whalers started landing, they started trading firearms for food. And so the, the tribal groups at the northern part of the island suddenly had had firearms mm. and they then took those and they started settling the scores all over oh. the island and so the rest of the maoris wrote to england and said please come and call them because right. we're going to get killed right yeah. and, uh, 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 and england at first didn't want to do it and so they went to the united states and when they to ask us and when England found out about it, they said, okay, we'll come down there. So it, was, it has kind of a very interesting history that's different than other places. But anyway, I, I don't know why the answer is. I don't know why they yeah. allowed that. But the, the, the consequences in our country is that we now use three times the number of pharmaceutical drugs anybody in the world. By, by the way, nobody thought this was a good idea. The American Medical Association, all the major you know, doctor associations said this is insane. Yes. You can't tell people to start prescribing medications for themselves. Yeah. But now it's become expected. Like people now go to expected. their doctor asking for a yeah, prescription. So it works. It, the advertising it, really, really works. And that's yeah. exactly what, what they say in the ad is ask your doctor if this deadly drug is right for you. Right. Yeah. And and the thing is, it's not that I'm against pharmaceuticals i think there's certainly a place for that it makes sense there's life-saving medicine but when i talk about the prescription is the problem this is like the literal well you know sense. pharmaceuticals are now the third leading cause of death in our country uh, they're probably number one if you include the opioid epidemic yeah oh but they're the th without the opioid epidemic after cancer and heart attacks they are the third leading cause so it's a blight mm. We pay the high. We take more pharmaceuticals three times what any other nation does. Mm. We pay by far the highest price. This is all from, because of this system, and we have by far the worst health outcomes. Americans are now the sickest people in the industrialized world. We're number seventy-five. We're after El Salvador. We're after Cuba in mm, terms Cuba. of the health of our people, infant mortality, all of these metrics that you mm. use. Um, for, you know, public health were the worst. And how about just well-being? By the way, Tony Fauci has overseen this whole thing. Mm. And this is what he is supposed to be doing. He mm -hmm. is the head of National you know, Institute for Allergic and Infectious Diseases, and that includes autoimmune diseases. Mm. And what he's done is he's taken his agency and turned it into an incubator for the pharmaceutical companies. So he has partnerships with all these companies and he collects his agency collects royalties so what happens is he has a six billion dollar annual budget and then he gets another 1.7 billion from the pentagon because he's doing bioweapon stuff mm, wow and they invest in creating new products and so they do what we call mechanistic studies which is they will put um they'll take a new molecule and they'll drop it into a petri dish of some virus, you know, mm -hmm. coronavirus or flu, whatever. And if it kills the virus, and they farm it out to a university medical center, what they call principal investigators. And so he's putting hundreds of millions of dollars into Harvard and Baylor University and all these, you know, 
a thousand universities around the country mm-hmm. that he essentially is supporting to develop new pharmaceutical drugs. Mm. And they test it on animals. Mm. And if it works on animals, then they sell it to a pharmaceutical company like Gilead or Pfizer or Merck. And then they co-develop the product. And he then walks it through the marketing, get it through the FDA licensing. He controls the, the committee, that ver, what they call the VERPAC committee in FDA that licenses these new drugs. Those guys who are sitting on that committee are almost always people who are taking money from him to develop their own drugs. Mm. Well, they do whatever he says. He, I'll tell you how, how powerful this is. He no longer does public health. He just does pharmaceutical development. Mm. That's what Tony Fauci does. He has turned that agency from a public health agency into a pharmaceutical company. And then when he develops the product, he gets to his agency will usually keep half the royalties. So they keep the patent, for example, on the Moderna vaccine. He developed that vaccine with 2.6 billion of taxpayer money. His agency owns half the patent. Mm. They're licensing Moderna and these other companies to use it, to use the platform. But he'll make 50% of the money will come back to his agency. And he has six guys who work for him, the top-level guys, and each one of those guys owns part of the patent. Mm. Under his policy, people who work for him can collect $150,000 a year per patent as long as they worked on it when they were at his agency. So he can award is really just part of the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. Well, let's let's pause there for a moment because um, I'm not a vaccineologist, and to my knowledge, you're, you're not either. Um, but I, it does, you know, it's funny when I when I was telling people we're going to have RFK Jr. on the podcast. One of the first things I said is, oh, you shouldn't have him on the podcast. You'd be crazy to have him on the podcast. And I, and my question was like, well, why do you say that? And even people close to me, they're like, well, because he's an anti-vaxer. And I'm like what makes you say that? And they're like, well, I don't know. It's what I heard. I read it on Wikipedia or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and I was like, well, I thought our Wikipedia page was, was uh, the criticism on that page was bad. Mm-hmm. You pull up yours and it's a different thing. And so, so people often say that, well, RFK Jr. is an anti-vaxxer. Are you? No. And I've said it a million times, but that is a pejorative that is used by the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah to marginalize people who ask legitimate common sense questions about the testing, the efficacy and safety testing of their products. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, don't listen to them, they're an anti-vaxxer. Right. And then people say, well, he's dangerous, he's crazy, he's against vaccines, and having vaccines saved all these lives, and he's against them, therefore he must be nuts, and he should be marginalized and vilified and, you know, and uh, not listened to and censored. Right, right. And, 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 and I mean, in fact, there's a question here from Chris, uh, another question. He said, the main thing I'd like to hear RFK talk about is censorship. Medicine has a long history of getting things wrong, so it seems unwise to shut down the naysayers because they actually might be right. Malcolm Kendrick has, uh, has been good on this topic. Quote, medicine is littered with examples of interventions that were considered so inarguably beneficial that no trials were, were ever done. Strict bed rest for MI. Um, I guess that's a... a well, x-rays for pregnant women yeah, is a good right. example. Thalidomide is an example. And by the way, you know, what they're really asking us to do is trust the vaccine companies. Yeah. 
and the vaccine company. So it's not trust the science. Well, the the agency is really a subsidiary, and it's not just me saying this. Congress has done a series of investigations about NIH, FDA, and CDC, and they've said they're just they're just seamless subsidiaries of the industry that they're supposed to be regulating. Regulatory capture occurs with every a public agency, but with the public health agencies, it's more than any others because they, they're intertwined at a level, and particularly economically, that no other agency is. For example, FDA gets 50% of its money, of its budget, from pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. Hmm. CDC, um, 45% of CDC's budget, about $4.9 billion out of its $11.5 billion budget, goes to buying and distributing vaccines. So it is a vaccine company. Mm-hmm. It owns vaccine patents. It collects royalties on the product it regulates. Mm-hmm. NIH, Tony Fauci, is a, just a partner. They're not doing regulation. They just mm-hmm. do development for pharmaceuticals, and including vaccines. And so, you know, EPA is captured by the, the agencies, too, by the, re- the regulated industry. When I sued Monsanto, you know, as part of the trial team that won the $13 billion settlement last year. Wow. What did you do with all that money? I haven't got any yet. I'm waiting. Um, But we won that, you know, the settlement and after winning three jury trials. And the the reason the jury trial, we got, we won $289 a million in the first trial. We won, I think, 89 million on the second, and then 2.2 billion on the third. The reason the jury gave us that money because they were pissed at Monsanto. Why? Because we were able to show that Monsanto knew that this that glyphosate that Roundup called caused an Hodgkin's lymphoma, and what they had done was they had manipulated the science. They had captured the head, the chief of the pesticide division in EPA was a guy called Jazz Roland, and he was secretly working for Monsanto. Mm. He was killing studies, he was manipulating science, altering studies. Um, this to, is public knowledge, this is out this, there. And this is why the jury was so angry. Wow. So Podcast Sean can Google this and put links oh, in the yeah, show notes. Oh yeah, Jess Roland, J-E-S-S-E Roland. He was one of those, what did you call him, a biostitute? He was just a criminal, you know, who was secretly, we got one email that we showed the jury where he was writing his bosses secretly at Monsanto and saying, I'm going to kill this study by the ASTDR, which is another federal agency. They're trying to study the links, and I'm going to kill it. And when I do, you need to give me a gold medal. Oh, wow. Of those, mm. you know, that was the kind of stuff we showed the jury, and they were just okay. We're, we're gonna, we're gonna stick it to these guys because they were, you know, they were subverting democracy. This all and, seems and they like were a, killing people. This yeah. all seems like a byproduct of like of crony capitalism, basically. Well, yeah, that's Agreed. what it is. Uh, you imagine, you know, that's an EPA. EPA is a fairly independent agency. You've sued you them before. You come to CDC. And you come to, you know, NIH, which are actually, and FDA, which are, which are being paid by the vaccine makers. So they're getting, you know, 50%. What if, what if it's like if EPA was making half of its money selling coal? Mm. You know, think about the, the, it's like 
agency capture on steroids. Right. Now, I, I didn't plan on talking about vaccines today, but while, while we're here, if you're not anti-vax, then, then, then... I just want safety studies. That's all. I want real yeah. safety studies and good safety science. But so, isn't that being done now? Well, none of the 72 vaccines that are licensed for children that are mandated for our kids uh-huh. have ever been tested against a placebo in pre-licensing studies. So nobody has any idea about what the risks are. So mm. everybody tells you, well, we know we kill a certain number and injure a certain number of people. We, we can't deny that. The vaccine courts have paid out $4.5 billion to people who we've injured and killed. But the numbers that we're injuring and killing, the numbers we're saving are so much more than the numbers that we're killing uh, that it doesn't matter. But they can't say that because they don't know. And when we actually look at these vaccine by vaccine and actually do do the safety science, it actually looks like the vaccines, for most of them, you can make the argument that they are probably causing much, much more harm than they're, um, than they're averting. Now, with the COVID vaccines, for the first time in history, we are seeing placebo-controlled studies for some of them. Hmm. And they're large enough studies that, you know, there are 15,000, 20,000 people. So those are pretty good studies. That is able to capture rare injuries, but they're only for four weeks or eight weeks. Hmm. Um, you know, most of the injuries you see from vaccines have long diagnostic horizons or long incubation periods like autoimmune disease. Vaccines cause food allergies, particularly the aluminum in vaccines cause allergies. So it's not the vaccine necessarily. It's what it's if there's mercury or aluminum. And again, this isn't every single vaccine. This no, is no. Well, yeah. al- there's aluminum in about half the vaccines and aluminum is put in the vaccines to amplify the allergic response to the antigen, which is the vir- or pro- particle um, that they put in the vaccine. It's part of the virus that they're making. They want you to develop an antibody response to. Mm-hmm. And if they use live virus, there's a lot of danger to that because it could more, it could oh, yeah. mutate in your body and spread the disease. So yeah. they use dead virus, but that doesn't provoke a robust enough um, antibody response. What they learned very early on in vaccinology is that if you added something horrendously toxic to the vaccine, mm. that a dead virus vaccine could provoke really super strong antibody response because your immune system recognizes the toxic chemical yeah and it associates it with the antigen the viral particle and it says holy cow next time i see that i'm gonna really go after it yeah and but the problem was the vaccinologists were not toxicologists so they weren't asking well what is the fate of the aluminum or the, or the mercury yeah what happens to it after we inject it and it does its useful job for us. And there's a there's an axiom on vaccinology that says the more toxic the adjuvant, adjuvant is the chemical you put in to provoke that immune response, the toxic chemical, the more toxic the adjuvant, the more robust the response. So there was a hunt for the most toxic um, adjuvants that you could find to add to vaccines. And what what they you know now what the science now shows is that yes, it gives you that aluminum in the vaccine will give you an allergic response to the to the antigen, yeah. which is what you want. Mm-hmm. But it also gives you an allergic response to anything else that's in the vaccine. So if there's a peanut oil excipient uh-huh. in the vaccine, if there's a if there's latex oh, in wow. the vaccine or 
You had latex. You know, there was latex in the container that housed the vaccine, or if there's latex on the nurse who wipes your arm and that gets in you. Or if there's a Timothy weed outbreak, the day you get that vaccine. A Timothy weed? Let's say Timothy weed. That's a seasonal allergy. Uh It's very common. And in the East, you know, many people, kids, have Timothy weed allergies. If there's a Timothy weed outbreak at the time you get that aluminum vaccine, Mm -hmm. you could now have a lifetime allergy to Timothy weed. Listen, I have kids who have allergies, and I was one of the founders of the Food Allergy Initiative, Food Allergy Network, the biggest food allergy group in the world. We've raised probably $100 million to do science, and we study how to treat allergies. And the way that scientists study that is they give allergies to a lot of rats, peanut allergies or latex allergies or dairy or meat allergies, and then sure. they try to figure out how to cure them, how to you know stop it from manifesting. Mm-hmm. How do they give it to a rat? They take the aluminum from a hepatitis B vaccine, the aluminum adjuvant, and they give it to them with a peanut protein. Mm. Or they give it to them with a latex protein. Mm-hmm. Or they give it to them, you know, with whatever they're oh, trying to provoke. And they will give, they, they can automatically give that rat a lifetime allergy by injecting them with the adjuvant and a protein. So it's not a mystery where all these allergies are coming from. They're coming from, you know, mass inoculation of an entire population mm. with aluminum. And there's a number of studies, including one by Moss and by Tony Moss, and who's a famous scientist. And what they found is that children who are vaccinated have 30 times the rate of allergic rhinitis as children who are not. Mm. And that's because those kids have those, you know, those allergies. Now, I think we need to be able to have these conversations. I know Ryan and I have slight opinion differences on vaccines and vaccination, and yet we're open. We've had several people on this podcast who are very pro-vaccine, seem to not even question it. And we have other people who are like very like, oh, I don't know if I would ever, ever take one. But I'm pro-questioning whatever, especially the things I'm putting into my body. And I think for the longest time, I didn't question anything, especially if an authority figure, someone who had a credential of some sort, said, put this in your body, whether it's ingesting it, you know, or, or you know, the, the paint on the walls or whatever. Like it was totally fine for me to, to breathe in or, or whatever without even questioning. And when we talk about living an intentional life, what we're really talking about is questioning what, uh, whatever we're bringing yeah. in. Yeah. You need critical thinking. And yeah. you know, authoritarianism has no place in medicine. Mm. Medicine is about curiosity. It's about open debate. It's about an open ferment of ideas and a marketplace of ideas where the best ideas will come to the surface and if you tell if you stop listening to criticism if you tell people you're not allowed to talk about that but that's what you've been told of course and but it's not just me it's every woman who is a vaccine injured kid and puts a picture of her child on Facebook is deplatformed and erased. And in, in, hmm. even if they're not de- deplatformed, they're often shamed for even they're, asking they're the questions. Shame. They're, hmm. It's like heresy. It's an orthodoxy. You're right. not allowed to question it. 
Well, and I'm uh, Ryan and I are uncancelable, thankfully, and so like <laughs> we we you know we don't we're not beholden to well, advertisers. That's why I'm starting a podcast because you know it's the only place where I haven't where I, they can't cancel me. Right. And our you know we now have a newsletter called The Defender, which is exploding, and we're getting six million page views a month after our fourth month. But it, we've had to start our own infrastructure. Or communicated the science, and we do it differently on the Defender. We'll let anybody come and comment. Mm. We'll let industry people, the scientific community. Democracy functions. They, the fuel of democracy, the sunlight of democracy, the you know the the energy of democracy comes from an open flow of information and free flow of debate. Yeah. And if you can't have ideas that can triumph in the marketplace, and you know. Uh, you you can't just tell people don't talk about yeah. competitive you know ideas. Yeah, and that's what we're doing for the first time in American history. And with, it's, strangely, yeah. it's my people, it's my liberal you know friends, yeah, who are suddenly saying, well, censorship is okay. Yeah, you know, which is weird. It's very very strange to me that you know we're seeing all of our constitutional rights under assault right now you know jury trial has been eliminated for people who are injured by vaccines so that's the seventh and the sixth amendment yeah. we're seeing the right to assembly that is under attack without we're seeing due process there's no hearings on these laws you know nobody's saying to us wear the mask because here's the science that says it works that's mm. never happened mm. we've never seen anybody say that we're just told Science says this, wear a mask, trust authority. Yeah. But we, we are seeing some science that, you know, w with respect to particulates in the air, that obviously viruses well, no, spread that this, way. Uh, well, my concern about masks has me, to do with, the, with all, all the chemicals we, that are in we, the, the disposable that's masks. That's one of the things, you know, that 3M makes the mask and they're loaded with PFOAs. But, le but let me just say this we don't take a position on masks, we don't tell people wear them or not make them. But what we do do, and you can go to Children's Health Defense website and see this, is we've tried to find every study that's ever been done on masks, mm. and we summarize them and post them so that you can wear, use them. And we have not been able to find a single study that shows that masks actually work. Now, well, how, what, what do you mean? How do they work? Do, do they work by helping one not? Contract a disease, or, Here, do, or, or do they not help the the, uh, okay, the, let me, the spread? That's of it. a good you question. Let me, because there are studies that are cited for the proposition that mass work. Usually, those are particulate studies. So they'll say particulates are are fragmentized and they have less of a trajectory, so they're less likely to spread. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of presumptions in there. Okay. That are not supported by science. Hmm. If the study that you really want is a placebo-controlled study, so you want half the people wearing masks and half the people not wearing masks, and then you want to measure transmission mm -hmm. and protection, the two things that you just said. Yeah. Is the guy wearing the mask protected from getting the disease? Is he less likely to get the disease? Mm -hmm. Is the person not wearing the mask more likely to, to catch the disease? Yeah. There are no studies that support masking like that that we've been able mm. to find. Now, if somebody listening to this podcast has that study, please send it to CHG and we will post it. Now, so, here, and oh, th this right. is the weird thing, okay? When we started looking at this, my assumption was that it, 
Mass probably worked in clinical settings and in institutional settings. Okay. So in hospitals, right. a mask that is better for a doctor who is performing surgery on you to wear a mask than to not wear a mask, obviously. You know, and not just that he might spit into your chest cavity. Right. Which would come on. be horrible. Right? Yeah. But why wouldn't it work outside of the clinical setting? Well, because is it going to work outside, really? You know, when, I, I, when you're hiking in the Santa Monica Mountains, should you be wearing a mask? Is well, that good yeah. for you? So, Look, you need to do that, but in the clinical setting where, you know, where you're indoors and it's a sterile setting, isn't it more better? And you're, you're wearing it for a short period of time. Uh-huh. I think if you're wearing it a long time, there's all kinds of obvious problems that may occur. Cause there's, mm. It's a media that stuff can grow on. Sure. And there's CO2 trapped in there, and there's many, many studies that show that it's dangerous. It hurts your immune system. It hurts your oxygenation, et cetera, to wear a mask. Many studies like that. But mm. putting those aside, and we post those too. But that, well, that's interesting. Uh, but, but, but let me just let okay. me finish it. Sure, sure. Oh, so I came across one of the people who were doing this research, and we just said, post them all, whatever they say, post everything. There's a study by the Imperial or the London University Hospital from 1982, where they said, you know what, we've had doctors wearing masks for almost 100 years, and nobody's actually done a study that shows that it works. Mm-hmm. So they said for six months, even in these surgery theaters, we're gonna have everybody take off the mask. Mm-hmm. And when they did that, for, and then we're gonna, we're gonna look at different time periods mm-hmm. when they were wearing masks, and when they took the mask off, the infection rate dropped even in the surgical theater. Mm. I don't know why, but I just thought, okay, maybe that's an anomaly. But then we went out and we found study after study after study from institutional settings that said the exact same thing. Hmm. So here's what should have happened. And again, I don't take a position on this. I'm just telling you what the science says as far as we've been able to find it. What should have happened is what happens normally in a democracy is you have a rulemaking proposal. So Tony Fauci would say, look, we think masks work. Yeah. We're going to say everybody wears masks, and here's the parameters. You wear them inside, you wear them when there's a crowd, you wear them in public places, et cetera. And here's what our proposed rule is. Then they do an environmental impact statement mm. and a regulatory and an economic impact statement. And they say, here are the costs of masks. The same thing for lockdowns. Here are, here's why we think lockdowns work. Here are the scientific studies that support it. Mm-hmm. Here are the studies that don't support it, and here's why we differ from them. Mm-hmm. And here are the cause of lockdowns. Oh, here, we're going to kill 235 million people from starvation. We're going to kill people from heart attacks, from stress, from suicides. Yeah. But we're going to save more people from coronavirus than we kill through suicides and stress and starvation. Right. And that has to be done, a risk analysis and the costs and the benefits. You do that through an environmental impact statement and a regulatory and economic impact statement. Mm. And you have a public hearing. You have a comment period for 60 days where, the co- where individuals can say, wait a minute, this is going to destroy my business. Mm-hmm. Can you do a carve out because my business doesn't spread disease? Here's the evidence. The government then has to respond to those. Mm-hmm. And, and you have a public hearing where Tony Fauci comes in with his experts and defends the rule. Mm-hmm. 
and people who oppose it come in with their experts and their science, mm -hmm. and you have a debate. But if there's a public emergency, there's well, no, no time for it, that, right? Public, absolutely. If you have a public emergency... Isn't that what we have, though? It's a pandemic. Well, how long can a pandemic last? Does well, that mean forever? No, I mean, it's a couple uh, years, though, isn't it? Well, do you need... A, you need to suspend the Constitution for two years, or can you? I mean, what we were originally told is we're going to have the lockdowns. Two weeks. For two weeks. I'm right. just to, to dampen. Two weeks of my life. To dampen <laughs> the surge. To dampen yeah. the surge. Yeah. Okay, that's one thing. That's an emergency. After four weeks, even yeah. if it's an emergency, or six weeks, or eight weeks, or six months, you can go ahead now and have the public hearing. Right. And you yeah. Can, and you can keep sense. the rules in place till it's over. It yeah. does make sense. I, I feel I, also, though, that... And, but why do we suspend, you know, for all of these things? Now we have a, these medical dictators... Nobody knows what they're doing. Who are... And, and one month, Tony Fauci says in March, masks don't work, forget about them, they're a joke. Mm -hmm. Two months later, he said, strap the them mask. on. Yeah. And Nobody then two I mean, months after that, strap four of them on. No one knows what they're doing. This, <laughs> this is so – what I hope happens from this pandemic, because it certainly hasn't been handled well, but what I really hope happens is that we learn from the mistakes of what we did this past year – Probably uh, the next year. The, the, this, this. Do you see that happening? Do I see I what happens? I don't happened? see. I see totalitarianism. Oh, I, you know, and wait? a shocking public acceptance of these totalitarian rules and the absolute suspension of democracy in the U.S. Constitution. I see the freedom I, of assembly yeah. vanish, the freedom of jury trials, the freedom of religion. You know, they. How is it that you let it's liquor stores stay open as essential business and you close the churches and you tell people that and you close AA too? Well, you close AA. You yeah. know, I read yesterday. Yeah, AA, that's a slippery slope. The grapevine, which is the AA magazine. Yes. I'm reported that there has been a 40 percent drop in membership mm. since the pandemic. That means what they're saying is 40 percent of people started who are in that program started drinking. They gave up. They yeah. gave up. Well, they gave up on the program, yeah. Yeah. That's so, I mean. Yeah. yeah and, and, and so, the, Ryan, this question here from Ramsey about why is polarization stigmatized, I think he's actually asking a question that you're sort of answering here. You, sure. Ryan is very hopeful in, in the sense that – actually, you want to finish the question, then we'll yeah, talk about why is, it. Yeah, why is polarization stigmatized? We can't have the same mindset on every topic. So why do we have so much negative feelings toward people who think – Differently, and you know, I, I try not to think negative negatively towards people who have different feelings. Like, I'm really glad you're here because it, it is getting me to question certain uh, beliefs that I have. I mean, just when it comes to masks. But one thing I want to circle back to with this polarization is you had mentioned like the the things that grow inside the masks, the the CO2 things like that, and how that can be harmful. Also, the chemicals in the the, the, dis the disposable mask, not like the cloth mask. Right. So, yeah. So, so yeah. So, take, <laughs> so take away the <laughs> well. Yeah. So, so take so take away the the chemical aspect of it. But in the in the medical setting, do do surgeons who have to like operate for you know eight or twelve hours straight, and they're wearing that mask for eight or twelve hours straight, is there data that shows that they have a lower life expectancy or a shorter life expectancy? than someone outside of the medical setting who doesn't wear a mask. Well, no, but I, I don't think that kind of... Yeah, help me understand this. I'm asking to understand it, it's There's so many variables, and, you know, why surgeons live longer, why airline pilots, like, you can't really... You, you couldn't pin it down to a, 
a single. I, I think you, there would be but, some but kind let, of. Let me just talk about sure, one of the other sure. things. One of the costs of mass that would come up if you actually had a public hearing. Mm-hmm. And that is, what does it do to a society? What does it do to children if they can't see each other's faces? If you look through at totalitarian governments throughout the history of mankind, yeah. the first thing that they do is they try to control public expression, self-expression, mm-hmm. creativity. They kill the intellect. You know, Hitler moved into Romania, moved into Poland and Czechoslovakia. First thing that the SS did and the Gestapo is to go and kill all the intellectuals, the the poets, the mm. people who wrote, the painters, mm. and try to control painting and books, yeah. burning the books, destroying any form of self-expression. That is key to authoritarian control. Mm. Well, they, they, the thing that made the, the, the most, most vivid, the most powerful instrument we have of self-expression is our face. Yeah. 100 four, plus muscles, We have 40, right? 42 muscles in oh, our face okay. that change, you know, the, that, that can express cynicism, that can express skepticism, that can express humor. It's subtle, too. And we're always communicating to each other these little subtle things. Yeah. And what if you, you know, that's why in really, you know, in the, uh, theocracies like in the Mideast, where women traditionally are chattels, they're property. Right. They're slaves. Can't even drive. Yeah. They're not allowed to drive cars. And it's how awful. do you stop people from talking about that and from expressing their dissatisfaction? You make them wear masks. Mm. And I'm not saying that people who are Muslim should not wear masks as part of their devotion, but I'm saying when the state imposes it, it becomes something different altogether. Yeah. You're saying as opposed to a choice, whereas we've always had the choice to put on a mask, you know, for the last yeah, but for hundred the state years. To say you can't, it stops us from communicating to each other. Hmm. I go for a hike every day on the Santa Monica mountains. Yeah. And there are two classes of people. There's the one who's wearing the mask and there's the one then, and there's tremendous hostility. Oh yeah. You would say hi to somebody who's not, who's wearing a mask. They won't talk to you. They give you, you know, a, a sneering. So they're driving the sense of community. It's driving people apart. It's this is the problem with polarization. And, and, yeah. and so Ramsey's question about polarization, that mm. it, it is a problem. Now, it, because polarization, what it does it, it, is it, it's, it's tribalism. And tribalism exactly. blocks the truth. Tribal, a tribe unites against something. Oh, we're excluding that person. Whether it's the the pro mask or anti mask, I'm not part of either tribe. I'm yeah. pro question, and I'm I am curious about this. And the more I hear hear thoughts on it, I do see some potential upsides. Obviously, if surgeons have been wearing it for a long time, if it makes sense for them to wear yeah. it in that setting. It can make sense outside. Now, it sounds to me like what you're saying is maybe it doesn't even make sense in that setting. We don't know. I am highly concerned about the chemicals that are on the mask because if there's chemicals in the mask and I'm breathing it in all day, yeah. then and by the way, I smell it. When I put, put a brand new mask on, yeah. it, it, it's like, oh, what? What, what is that? And so I think we need to be able to have these conversations. And we also, you know what? We need to be okay with being unsure I, th- I think it's important yeah I think it's important to, to look at both sides and, and you know we, we were talking about um, and this comes with the polarization we were talking about censorship earlier and you know about it firsthand and you know a piece of me is like 50% of me understands like okay like you know you look at QAnon and what that has done to our society 
but they're not really that much different from any other cult that someone belongs to. So we're going to shut down all cults Twitter accounts now. Um, mm. But also I can see the damage that misinformation does. But in the same token, talking about the polarization, we do have to, in, 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 in uh, some aspect, polarize things to really get to the, the truth or to get to the closest we can to the truth. And who gets to decide what, what is the um the cult and what isn't a cult and, and right. is it zuckerberg right right because yeah you were removed yeah. from instagram at one point yeah and the problem is that you know what you end up with it when you start allowing outlets like that to censor people is you're going to end up with corporations controlling criticism and right now yeah. anybody who criticizes a pharmaceutical product Vaccines are just a pharmaceutical product. Why can't we criticize them? By it's the corporatism. way, yeah. the four companies that make the 72 vaccines that are mandated for our children are all convicted felons. Those four companies, which are Merck, Sanofi, Pfizer, and Glaxo, have paid $35 billion in the last 10 years in criminal wow. penalties and damages um, for falsifying science, for defrauding regulators, for bribing, mm. blackmailing, for killing Hundreds of thousands of people. Vioxx, which is Merck's drug, killed between 120,000 and 500,000 Americans from heart attacks. Wow. They were selling it as a headache pill. They knew it killed people, and they didn't tell anybody. Wow. And when we sued Merck and got their spreadsheets, we found the, you know, these, these memos from their bean counters saying, we are going to kill these people. Yeah, we're still going to make more money. Because um, because we're going to sell so much of this drug, mm-hmm. they made that decision. But they didn't give the consumers who were buying most of those people. If they knew that, that it could kill them, they would be saying, you know, maybe I'll take an aspirin instead. They weren't given that choice. Yeah, his company knew it and it did it. And Johnson and Johnson, which has one of the vaccines, was one of the biggest producers of one of the opioid ingredients. They drove, They were convicted. They've been, uh, you know, they, they, yeah. they've been charged with defrauding the public. Mm. And so, what it requires a cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Particularly liberals to say, well, yeah, they're lying and they're cheating and stealing on every other product. It's part of their culture. And yeah, with vaccines, you know, they're they're probably playing it safe. They're, they're telling <laughs> the truth. Uh, and vaccines are the only place you can't be sued. The only way they got busted with all those other drugs is because people like myself, plaintiffs' attorneys, suing them on behalf of an injured, dead plaintiff, yeah. was able to get do discovery, go through their documents, find the documents that showed criminal behavior, and then walk them down to the U.S. attorney's office and say, look, you should prosecute them and put them in jail. Yeah. The only place that can ever happen is vaccines because you're not allowed to sue them. Wow. There's no discovery. There's no depositions. There's no class action. So you can't even sue them to see information? No. To see studies? You cannot wow. see. They're, they're foolproof, bulletproof. They can do anything they want. Why do you think they're behaving? Yeah. Why would anybody believe that they're behaving? Yeah. I have this quote from Anthony DeMello. We usually do this little segment called More About Less. It's usually a, a discussion point, but I thought this was this is a summary of what we're talking about right now. So... Anthony DeMello, the great mystic Jesuit priest, he said, when you say he's a communist, understanding stops. She's a capitalist, understanding stops. If the label carries undertones of approval or disapproval, so much the worse. How are you going to understand what you disapprove of, what you approve of? And and I think what DeMello is saying here is as soon as we 
we, we try to with that tribalism thing. We we put yeah. someone in a box. Oh, uh, they're an anti-vaxer. They're an anti-vaxer, or or you know, what, whatever it is, whatever right. label we throw, it's dismissive. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I, Ryan and I thought it would be fruitful to have you here today, and I'm grateful that you are here, is because I don't want to dismiss someone with an educated point of view. I mean, you know, if it's someone who is toxic, that's not you. You know, if Dave Rubin came on here, then we would just have to shelve his episode. Um, <laughs> no, but, it's, uh, it's important to bring on uh, uh, different opinions, opposing opinions, and it's we really want our audience to get, you know, we want them to make up their minds for themselves. Well, let's, speaking of tribes, Kat says, how do we affect change within our tribes without being cast out for thought crimes? So thought crime, that's another way to describe what's going on right now uh, to a certain extent. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I like the way that you put it. That is, um, and there's a very, there's a fan, there's a preacher, um, a Protestant minister named David Lohr, who is brilliant on this issue. And, you know, and he talks about orthodoxy is just the, the religious version of tribalism and tribalism is a biological impulse it's something yes. that um you know during the twenty thousand generations when we were wandering the african savannah with um in warring tiny groups that were you know were related to each other and mm-hmm. a lot of genetic material in common and that roger ailes the was only, there back then too the <laughs> only way that you could survive was you know, through absolute allegiance to a powerful male authority figure, and yes. that women were chattels who you knew you had to trade out your women because, um, because that was the only way to maintain some kind of you know genetic diversity inside ah, of the your good group. old days. <laughs> and so they, so they weren't really humans; they were just trading objects. Yeah, it's and crazy. They were mass, et cetera. And then you had to have unit cohesion, which means you all ascribe to the same narrative. Yes. And mm. then anybody who's outside your tribe, you can kill, you can drive a plane into a building, you can do whatever yeah. you want and commit any atrocity against them. And anybody you're inside your tribe, no matter what they say, no matter how crazy it is, you're okay with it. Right. And As and, long as you're ascribing to, uh, subscribing to the same narrative. Right. Right. And with... And, and orthodoxy, religious orthodoxy, is just a form of tribalism. And if you look at, you know, what David Lord talks about is this study that was done of all of the different religions and the orthodox sects within one of them, within each of them, whether it's Jews or Muslims or Christians, all of these same characteristics in common, which is absolute belief of a narrative and a strong leader and a need to impose that on other people. And whereas the underlying religions were very different and were all about love and ethics and morality, that, that, you know, the orthodoxy really had its own characteristics. And the secular version of orthodoxy is fascism, mm. which is nationalism, yeah. which is the same thing. We're part of this group. Yeah. Anybody outside of us we can destroy. We, we ascribe to the same kind of, you know, creation myths, etc. Now, in orthodoxy, you cannot have critical thinking. You have to have blind faith in undeserving authorities. And anybody who questions that cannot be debated. They have to be burned at a stake. They yeah. have to be destroyed. They have Often to be publicized. silenced. Right? Yeah, they have to be silenced. Right. right. To scare everyone example. else from questioning. <laughs> right. right. And so that, and you know, people, we all have that biological impulse. And you know, one of the things that liberalism was supposed to do 
aspirationally is to free us from that biological impulse and say, you know what? We don't agree with the Nazis. They represent the worst, but we're going to allow them to march in Skokie, Illinois. We're mm-hmm. going to allow them to speak. Because once we say it's okay to shut up the Nazis, then there's no end to that. Mm-hmm. And you can shut up everybody. Mm-hmm. And the reason we have the First Amendment to the Constitution is not for the easy times. It's not for the speech that everybody loves. It's for the speech that everybody wants to shut up. For the guy who's a nuisance, who seems like a threat. It's not for times of peace. It's for times of crisis. That's why they put it number one. Because they said, it doesn't matter what the crisis is. We've lived through all kinds of crises, much more worse crisis than coronavirus. Yeah. We had during the Cold War an existential threat from nuclear bombs. Yes. Mm-hmm. We had during the revolution, you know, it was an unwinnable war. The British were beating us. Yeah. And they said, we don't care. Everybody gets to talk. Mm-hmm. You know, during, there was, during the Civil War, we had 669,000 people killed in our country. That was 50 times how many are being killed today from coronavirus compared to the population. And we had an existential threat to our country as being torn to pieces. And yet the court said, no, you need to preserve the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. You know, so why, why are we being shut up now? Why are we being silenced? It doesn't, the First Amendment doesn't end when somebody, when Tony Fauci says, you know, everybody put on your mask and put it and shut your mouth. Mm. Now, when you say we're being shut up, I mean, it's not we're not it's actually not the government being, shutting us up. It's the, right. It's well, no, these, it is the CDC. Look at event uh, 201. Listen, that? Facebook is coordinating its censorship with the CDC. So, they admit that. So so Facebook, so Facebook is taking and guidelines. If you look at event 201, which happened in yeah. October of 2019, which was Bill Gates, the CDC, the CIA, World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, Bloomberg, you know, the military, uh, the, you know, the Johns Hopkins um, Public Health and Biosecurity Center, which is a military genesis. Um, hmm. What they said in that, if you look at segment four, there were four segments, is it's all about how do we get the, uh, the social media sites, Facebook and Instagram, to start censoring people. We need to censor anybody who does not agree with our totalitarian takeover of society. So that was a month before the virus began circulating. Mm. And they're sitting there, CDC was at the table advocating that we figure out ways to shut down people who are talking about this on social media, people like me. And right now, all of those sites are doing what they're told, and you know everybody else is being played like a fiddle. So why why is why is this? Uh, why do you think the CDC is taking this total totalitarian approach? Is it is it just does it all have to root back? Does it all root back to money and this crony capitalism? Does it root back to like do they legitimately have good intentions with with the, the regulations well, that they're trying at, to put on? You know, you, so, so you I have mean, to look why? at you have to look at uh, institutional dynamics. Mm-hmm. It's always every institution wants to create more power for itself. Hmm. And if you can create more power by shutting down democracy, then all the better. You think it's a power grab? That's why the well, CDC. Well, I mean, it. you know, you listen, the CDC came out of the military. Hmm. It still has deep 
military. Was it started out as a as a as a quasi military agency. It still has deep relations with the military, deep roots. You know, it's not an accident that the CIA was also at Event Two Hundred One. Why do you think the CDC officers wear uniforms hmm. and military ranks like Surgeon General? Hmm. There is a an idea that biosecurity is the biggest threat to humanity and that they are the military managers and that these emergency you know, authorizations and the declarations of emergency are that they need to come in and rescue us from ourselves. Hmm. That their mission is essentially to, you know, to, to protect us from the microbe. And they're not seeing any of the other threats. They're not seeing the fact of how many people are being killed by the lockdown. Mm-hmm. Nobody has ever made that assessment. Right. In 1982, there was a famous study created, and it was, it was part of a group of studies that were being created then because there were huge, if you guys remember, there was huge um, downsizing that was taking place with big American corporations for the first time. Yep. There was massive firings. Yeah. And there was, a, there was a whole cottage industry of economics that popped up at that time that said, what is the impact of unemployment on the mass population, on mortality, et cetera, on public health. Mm-hmm. So we have all these studies. And what the, the leading study showed is at that time that every addition of one unemployment point was 37,000 Americans dead. Mm-hmm. And that's when our population is half today. So you have to say 60,000 today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now we got 30 points of unemployment. That means we're killing more people from the lockdown just for money. And they went through it. They said, here's what you're going to have. You're going to have 9,000 of those people. So that would be 18,000 today are going to die from heart attacks. Mm. Um, 900 are going to die from suicide. And they went through the whole thing. And then they additionally, they said there's going to be 4,000 extra imprisonments, 3,300 extra admissions to mental institutions for every one point. Hmm. And so when you do 30 points... And that, and you know, the New York Times printed this week that there's 235 million people on our planet who have been now pushed to the edge of starvation. My God, yeah, I saw that. That dwarfs anybody killed by coronavirus. Hmm. The Times reported 10,000, even right now, 10,000 African children dying a month. Hmm. So the number of people the lockdown is killing may be 10 times the people that would have been killed by coronavirus without the lockdown and these public health agencies never made that assessment because they were able to avoid due process or we would have been able to say i would have been able to get tony fauci in a witness and saying have you calculated how many people you are going to kill with this lockdown Mm -hmm. and what would he say to that he would say we have no idea yeah we don't have time to assess that we We don't right okay but you have to have time I mean, now we do. If yeah. you're going to kill more it's people, a year, it's a year what's the into point? It. I, no, I totally agree. I mean, there should be a bit more of an assessment. So, I mean, I guess I'm just going back to that question of why. So, why the why the mask mandate? Why the censorship? I mean, it, it, is it a power grab? Is it so the vaccine companies can make so Fauci can make more money? I mean, well, I, I'm, Fauci, I'm just trying to get to the root of you know why why the totalitarianism? Is it a power grab? Because I don't see. I don't see a mask mandate leading to um, a, a a Nazi-esque type 
of environment. Yeah, I think I think maybe if I were to just rephrase your yeah. question here, it, you remember the South Park episode where the trolls stole the underpants? Yes. Wasn't that South Park? Yes. There's this episode of South Park. The trolls steal the underpants. So yeah. So uh, and there's a, it's a three part plan. Yeah. The th- <laughs> there we go. There's a three part plan. The right. plan is this. It is steal underpants. Yeah. Step two is question mark. Yeah. Step three is profit. <laughs> now what we're seeing here is okay. There's these mandates. There's censorship. That's step one. The end is there's profit. There's corporatism involved in all of this. What's this question mark? What, what, what connects the mandates and the censorship to the corporatism? Mm. Look, you know, I, it's a trap for me to answer your question. Oh, I, I, and I'm not even trying to do that. Oh, yeah. No, but, but I'm just saying, I know you weren't trying to trap me. Okay, good. Me. <laughs> as long as you know I'm not trying to trap but you. <laughs> it's a trap for me to start saying, well, you know, Bill Gates wants this and, you know, and Tony Fauci wants this. There, I mean, I... It's part of the lessons of our democracy mm. that people have power, the accumulation of power begets mm. desire to accumulate more power. Sure. And, and the, whole, the whole idea of democracy is that we have to keep power in check. Mm. And particularly large aggregations of power that are combining with each other. Mm. So when really, you know, one of the, uh, one of the uh, Bill of Rights in our Constitution is we don't allow religion to get together with the state because that's what happened in Europe. Mm-hmm. And then they start killing people who don't agree with state policies. Right. right? Yeah. And who don't, or don't practice that particular religion. So mm-hmm. we don't allow, the, the word fascism means a merger of state and corporate power. So mm-hmm. we don't allow the state to combine with corporations. We keep them apart. Yeah. And the largest, probably the most dangerous potentially, mm-hmm. um, group is the medical cartel Mm. because they control every aspect of your life. Mm. And when you allow the medical cartel, the pharmaceutical industry, the scientific journals, the the colleges and universities that are making money from developing all these new drugs, that whole group to combine with government now to start telling us, you know, you do this, you do that, and we're not having due process, and mm. we're going to suspend the Constitution because it's so dangerous out there. Mm. Um, it is dangerous. You don't let that happen. Now, I mean, let me just say this. Every year, 1.6 million people on the globe die from tuberculosis. Sure. That's an upper respiratory infection. Mm-hmm. Why aren't we wearing masks? Mm. Why aren't, why aren't we in lockdown to prevent mm-hmm. the spread of that? Why? Because there's a vaccine already, mm-hmm. and it costs $3, mm-hmm. and nobody's going to make money. Mm. Oh, that's killing more people than coronavirus globally. Hmm. Yeah. And yet, you know, we had a flu in this country that killed 200,000 people in 1969, and it was a major pandemic, global pandemic, and that was the year we went to Woodstock. Mm. Nobody was wearing masks. Yeah. None of the businesses were told to close. We've had much worse catastrophes than this in history, and we didn't shut down the global economy. Yeah. This is like, it's a, it is a cognitive dissonance. But we're allowed to tell people, and there's no epidemic in history where we told people who are perfectly healthy, stay in your homes. Mm. In the other pandemics, we say, if you're vulnerable, 
If you're sick, stay in your homes. Yeah. That's how you manage a pandemic. Yeah. You don't tell healthy people, don't come out of your homes. Yeah. And everybody's saying, oh, this makes sense. Why does it make sense now? Mm. It never made sense to anybody. You know, maybe it does make sense, but show me some science first. Show us the data. Show me it's going to work. And there is no data that show that it's going to work. Yeah. There's no data yeah. that show if you lock, listen, we lock people in their home every winter, yeah. right? Right. Because they go, because of the snow. Mm-hmm. What happens every winter? Flu There's season. a flu epidemic. Flu season, yeah. And you be uh, careful. What? And people who are susceptible stay home. And, and what, what happens is as, right. as they come out of their houses, the flu goes away. Mm. So, you know, that's the, that's, that is some contrary evidence right there. There is yeah. no evidence that locking people in their homes mm. and shutting down uh, every business. And meanwhile, there's a million black businesses that put out, 60% of them are never going to reopen. And those mm-hmm. businesses are a critical part of American culture. They, you know, some of three generations of investment in it. What happens? What are we going to do to pay back the debt that we've run up? It means dismantling the New Deal. Public education is gone. School lunches are gone. Yeah. School sports are gone for generations. My God. Why is nobody assessing these costs from the lockdowns. Yeah. You know, they're already saying what Gavin Newsom is saying to pay for the lockdown, we got to fire 57,000 teachers. Wow. Why are really? we doing this to our children? Yeah. Telling little kids you're going to wear masks who have zero, zero hmm. risk from this disease. Hmm. They got a bigger risk of getting struck by lightning. Hmm. And why are we telling them to wear masks? Yeah. And not go to school. Hmm. And what is the impact on our children and all these kids who are from abusive homes? They're, you know, it's easy for me because I go, I'm a home with six of my kids and it's wonderful. But there are kids, there are families in Harlem where the only hot meal those kids were getting every day was in their school. Yeah. And they have been eating freaking Cheetos. Right. Since this happened, what is the health impact? Did Tony Fauci ever tell us about that? Is he ever told us about the 10,000 kids that are dying of starvation in Mm -hmm. Africa every month because of his lockdowns, which are now, you know, the global template? Yeah. Nobody cares. Well, I think I think it's a, a, a lack of per- perspective. You know, it, yeah. Ryan and I grew up really poor in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, the west side, there's one of the largest food deserts in the country. We're actually helping build a, a nonprofit co-op there because, as you just said, the only place where people can eat is if they go to school because there's no there's literally no food on the west side of Dayton. And it, well, there is, but it's as Ryan just said, Cheetos. You can go 7-11 to Seven Eleven food. Yeah, li- local liquor store sort of right. food, a- and so. Um, I think what happens is we get caught up in literally our ivory towers. I live in an apartment building that is made of ivory, or the color is not made of ivory. It's color ivory. Wow. Yeah, right. Be fancy. <laughs> changed. Yeah. He's in a literal <laughs> ivory tower. No, I, I live in this apartment ivory, building. Some gold. Yeah, and it's <laughs> ivory. And, and what's fascinating is, you know, my brother's still back in Ohio. He he works in a in a factory, or he did. He manufactures cabinets and. The whole factory closed down toward the beginning of this, and and now he's working third shift at a meat packing plant. As a result, you know, and it's in it's not the ideal uh, position for him. There's a lot of fallout that has happened from these lockdowns that haven't been considered. And a year later, I mean, I hope to God that these that Fauci starts to consider these things. And and it's not because I believe one way or the other, but 
like you said, like just let's look at the data to see what this fall what the fallout is. I w- I would love to get back to this this topic of censorship, if I can swing it back around to there because let me can I interrupt you and go? Yeah, yes. We'll pause. We'll be actually. You know what? While he's going to use the bathroom, I got a f- couple questions I want to talk to you about, Ryan. All right, cool. Real so, quick. Yep. So. Um, Mark has a question here. He says, what have you had to apologize for recently? How did you make, <laughs> the, apology? Did you make the apology? That's a good question. Uh, ma- mainly because I think a lot of people don't know how to say, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, man. I think uh, the, most thing, uh, the most recent thing I've had to apologize for uh, was probably to my wife. And it's because I was having a stressful day and we were uh, – I don't know. We, we she I was just being very I was being very sensitive. I was being very touchy. And um I was not snapping, but I just wasn't being my kind self. Yeah. And like I it, it got to a point where I realized I was like, "Oh, I'm being a dick." And which I, is out of character for you. You are very very rarely a dick. Sure. So like I, you know, I had to go to Mariah and I'm like, "Hey, look. Sorry I've been a dick. Like here's what's on my mind right now. I'm a little stressed out from these things." This is like 2 days ago. Yeah. And uh yeah, I mean it, it's it was a very simple but see whenever you're in the wrong and you would and you step up to say I'm sorry, uh it's very rarely that the person you're saying sorry to isn't going to receive that well. I mean, maybe at first they want to give you some passive aggressive remark mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, you were a jerk." Yeah, that's right. I mean, but like once they kind of get that out of the way, like usually it can open up to uh healing the relationship yeah. what's the last thing you've had to apologize for uh well the thing that stands out is something i wrote toward the end of love people use things <laughs> there was uh, i just pulled it out so this is uh, our new book comes out this summer uh and this section is called apologize to move on it's toward the end of the book mm. it turns out that sometimes the toxic person in the relationship is you mm. meaning me Mm-hmm. It takes self-awareness and strength to realize this and admit your decisions have been inappropriate, negligent, or even toxic, poisoning the relationship with your bad behavior. Other times, the poison is subtle, a mere microdose of toxicity. You've made honest mistakes and errors that stain the relationship. And I think that's kind of what you were talking about there. It's like sometimes you don't even realize like I was being a jerk or I did something I, I need to apologize for. It's not out of malice. It's not even a bad decision per se. Yeah. It's just a, an error that you made. Yeah. When I screw up, it's usually a hindsight thing where I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Like it's not, I'm not in the moment where like, oh, I'm going to have to say sorry for this later. Right. <laughs> oh, that can happen sometimes. sometimes. I think as we get older and more, well, as we get more mature, I should say, mm-hmm. that tends to happen less. I mean, I can think of times when, testosterone fueled teens where i would do something i knew like in the middle of that tirade or fit or whatever like yeah oh this is going to come back to haunt me anyway either way you you were at fault and you have two options dig in your heels or apologize those (laughs) are your two options really right and i think i think we are predisposed there's something about us like we don't we hate being wrong so we dig in our heels yeah. And and that only makes it worse. So yeah. I, I have uh, I have this whole story in here of I screwed something up with a friend of ours. I think I call him Mike in mm-hmm. the book. And uh, here it says, coincidentally, I made one of these relational mistakes the week I wrote this. On the Minimalist podcast, I inadvertently disclosed some personal information about a friend of mine whom we'll call Mike. The error was not malicious. At the time, I didn't realize the details were private. You could have just put my name in there. <laughs> Be quiet, Mike. <laughs> 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 
To me, they seemed perfectly innocuous until I got the email from Mike stating otherwise. My first inclination was to reject his frustration. It's not a big deal, I thought. He's just overreacting. But I was projecting. Just because something isn't a big deal to me doesn't mean it's not upsetting to someone else. If I acted in a way that hurt my friend, it doesn't matter what I thought or how I felt. What matters is the damage I inflicted. And there was only one respectable way forward. Yeah. I had to kill him. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, plot twist. No, uh, uh, another question here real quick. I, I thought we would do uh, Danny's question and Kai's question. Uh, Danny says, is there such a thing as healthy competition? Hmm. Here's my response to, to this. So, so healthy competition. Like, like, what do you mean by that? Like, so I think comp let's take out the word competition I, because I think competition is a mental disorder. Or would it, it be like health? You could almost say healthy comparisons. In Ooh, a way. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, so then I would, I would actually remove the word healthy from that, but yeah. like healthy competition is like saying, is there healthy mental illness? Yeah. Well, I don't think so, but like, it doesn't mean that the mental illness is bad. Right. Like Elon Musk, for example, he, he has said himself, he thinks he might be on the spectrum a little bit. He has Asperger's almost certainly. Sure. But he's a genius. Yes. So is that a healthy mental illness? Right, exactly. Yeah. And so, so it, we get bogged down in the good, the bad. Healthy is another way to say good or bad oh, here. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's not always, but in this case, it is another way to say, is there such thing as you know good competition? I love what you just said. Is there such thing as healthy comparison? And it's yeah. like, well, comparison isn't bad, but it is the thief of, thief of joy. Yeah. It becomes a prison. Y- yeah, you can almost look at competition and comparison as a tool. And what are you using it for? Like if you're using it to uh, make your art better, whatever that art is, right? Like yeah. if you're comparing yourself, like, oh, can I play guitar like Jimi Hendrix? Like he's really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what was his routine or, you know, whatever it is, like you're trying to pick up ingredients to get as good as Jimi Hendrix. Like why are you making those comparisons um, where if I'm comparing myself, okay. if I'm comparing myself to the, you know, on the socioeconomic ladder to my neighbor, mm-hmm. like, yeah. So wh- what are you using those, those tools for? I, I mean, that's what I would ask with, with, uh, whose question was that? Danny's? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was Danny. We got, uh, Robert back here. I thought we, yeah. we would wrap up by, um, wait, can I talk about censorship for a second? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly where I was going. Oh, so go beautiful. Ahead. Perfect. We always finish each other's sandwiches. <laughs> so, okay. So here's, here's where I get caught up in censorship. Um, Shut I, up. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I love I love the idea of um, having opposing beliefs and uh, uh, theories. And I, I think that that, like I said earlier, that it kind of helps us get to the truth. But then you have things like, you know, when I look at this last election and how one man, the president of the United States, who had so much power just on Twitter to literally discount the credit of you know, not just media outlets and, and news in general, which, you know, to be fair, like, uh, it's all propaganda. It doesn't matter what news channel you go to. They all have an agenda. There's not one news channel that's, like, completely altruistic. They're corporations. They're beholden to yeah, advertisers. They're, try- they're, they're trying to aggregate eyeballs. That's every single media outlet. There's not – is there a nonprofit media outlet? N- NPR? There's CBS, yeah. Yeah, but st- – yeah, But still no? – but still, I mean, in a way, they're taking money from Gates, so you will not see. Right? No. So they're they're still yeah. beholden. They're still they're still an agenda. I totally agree with you. But 
we, we, we are at the point this last election where people were so convinced that the election was so partisan, even though when I look at it, it looks very bipartisan. They were so convinced that the election was rigged in however many different states with however many different governors and commissioners and even on a Supreme Court level and they're all in cahoots together that they stormed the Capitol. And to me, that is a symptom of something much worse that could potentially come to the United States of America. So the social media platforms get together and they're like, hey, look, this man is spreading so much misinformation that he's actually doing real harm in the world. Same thing I look at Alex Jones where the whole Sandy Hook thing where, I mean, literally the parents of these children who had to go through so much, had to go through even more because of one man who was like, oh, they're they're just, they're crisis actors. Don't believe them. I mean, they had to sue Alex Jones to the so they could stop getting death threats because of, again, one man so, so again, social media platforms uh, took this this person down to prevent this harm. I mean, is it? Do, do, my question is: is like, do you think there's ever an appropriate time for for censorship to happen with these social media platforms? Well, the censorship. You know, we have like a long history of jurisprudence about censorship. You cannot. The First Amendment does not apply to all speech. Right. Um, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, right. and you can't incite violence. And the argument for deplatforming Trump was the inciting is violence. that he was inciting violence. Okay. Uh, and I think inciting violence is a clear red line that you ought to be able to censor. I think if you start now picking and choosing— it's a slippery you know, slope. Look, I look at CNN every day, and all I hear, and I'm a liberal Democrat, mm. and I hear just lie after lie after yeah. lie, and it's yeah. all the pharmaceutical paradigm. If you if you challenge the pharmaceutical paradigm, you're crazy, and it's pharmaceutical propaganda, and mm-hmm. it's pro- and you know I've seen this for years from those guys because they you know they wouldn't. Um, criticize oil companies or car companies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not free speech. It's owned by their advertisers. And so the question is, um, the big problem, and I think that movie, the, the documentary Social Dilemma, mm-hmm. yeah. really puts this in perspective, Yeah, is what do you do? You know, we've always had a difficulty balancing where free speech ends and where there's actually speech that threatens the architecture of our democracy mm-hmm. and that fa- therefore threatens all of our other rights and, you know, and chaos. And you need to be able to control that speech, but you need to do it with a light touch and minimally. Now you have all the problems um, that have been amplified. And for those people who haven't seen the social media, what essentially, I'll summarize it, is the these social media companies invented algorithms to keep you on the site. As it turns out, the algorithms that keep you on the site so they can sell advertising to mm-hmm. you right. are algorithms that tend to reinforce your own worldview right. and to amplify it. And so if you're a Republican living next door to the Democrat and you ask the same question on Google, you're going to get two different answers yes. um, depending on your own point of view and what it tends to do. It drives polarization and it pushes people farther and farther apart and and it pours cement 
on those differences. And, you know, it was a very disturbing film because you have these people or the heads of these companies who are saying, we created a monster. We do not see how this is going to end except through a civil war. Right, yeah. Uh, the problem is the social media companies. No. And, you know, the question I think we need to be asking ourselves is how, not how do you stamp out, how do you play whack-a-mole by stamping out different things that different people consider threatening and what you'll end up with is things that corporate advertisers consider threatening. Right. And that's what you're always going to end up with because large mm. corporations are always going to do what their funders and their advertisers want them to do. They have the power. You're going to stamp out people like me who people need to hear my voice. Yeah. I don't care if you agree with me or not, but the idea that you can just silence me, that's not right in a democracy. No. And so the question I think we need to ask ourselves that we really ought to have hearings about yes. and have a national debate is, you know, should we just shut down these media companies completely, you know, and stop everybody from talking there? Yeah. Or is there a way to do this that does not threaten our core American values? Yeah. And I am confident that we'll figure that out, that we can figure that out. Mm. Uh, the idea that you can just start censoring people that you don't like, right. you know, uh, that threaten corporate profit-taking, that threaten the corporate subversion and takeover of our democracy, and that's what's going to end up with. Yeah, It can get out and, of control uh, pretty quickly that yeah, way. Yeah, and uh, listen, I, you know... Why is my voice being threatened? Why is my voice being silenced? If I was saying things that were inaccurate all the time, mm -hmm. then come and tell me where they're inaccurate. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I, if you say that on Instagram, you'll have 500 people saying you're full of crap. Mm -hmm. Right. right. There is a debate there that's congruent with, you know, our Constitution. Yeah. And, but I'm not doing that. I've only been flagged six times on Instagram, and five of those, only five of them were even related to vaccine or coronavirus, and every one of them was me citing a, a, a CDC website. Mm. There's nothing that I said that was ever inaccurate. Wow. Nobody has ever been able to point to something I said on Instagram that was inaccurate. Mm. They just didn't like what I was saying. Yeah. And so they shut me down. And, you know, that is a, that's not the beginning of a slippery slope. We are way down that right. slippery slope. If my voice, you know, it's not like I've been saying great. I'm out there saying crazy things for my whole life. And all the everybody, all the liberals who are, who are talking about me saying it's weird. He's right on all these other things. But, you know, he's crazy on vaccines. Mm. And, you know, he, he, you know he, he's won all these lawsuits and beat corporate polluters for 40 years and won 500 lawsuits. And, you know, how did he go off the rails and get, you know, and get go crazy? You know, what, what happened to him that he went mad? And none of them are listening to what I'm saying. No, mm. well, they're, they're dismissing hearing, you. Right, they're dismissing yeah. me and they're, they're, they're hearing the pejoratives and they're saying he's not worth listening to. I know what he's going to say. Mm. And I'm not going to listen to it because it's dangerous thoughts that he'll put in my head. <laughs> mm. It's that's the thought policing, the, the whole thing we were talking about with thought <laughs> yeah. policing earlier. Mm. Now, let me say one other thing about the censorship thing, Ryan, because <laughs> you brought up Alex Jones. Mm -hmm. And and what happens is then someone like because the censorship, someone like Alex Jones then gets lumped in with RFK Jr. Right. right? And, and all of a sudden, now, here's here's the other dangerous side of that is when you silence someone. 
it actually makes that a bit more enticing in a way for for especially extent. the the people on on the fringes to a large extent. Our our friend uh, Andrew Schultz, he's a former podcast guest comedian. He has a podcast called Flagrant Two. He just had Alex Jones on his podcast this week and let him go wild. And to me, that was like the best thing you could do because ah. all of a sudden it was like. Oh, like this guy's hilarious and kind of entertaining, but I would never take seriously anything this guy's saying because he exposed him in a long form podcast. Right. Uh, all of a sudden, 90 minutes into a discussion with Alex Jones, you're like, oh, this is the first time I've ever actually listened to him in any sort of thing this, long right. form. Yeah. And it's exposed him. Like he exposes himself. Exactly. The, the truth comes out. Mm -hmm. And so when you have RFK Jr. on the, the podcast, th then all of a sudden it's like, okay. Even even if you disagree with him about vaccines, mm -hmm. you can't dismiss him as crazy. Right. You can say, oh, I disagree, or I have additional facts that maybe you're not considering. That's part of the, the discussion. Facts. Exactly. Let's have a debate. Sure. Let's have a civil... Listen, nobody will debate me. Oh, you know, not, you got the top guys over 15 years I've been trying. I've said, okay, tell me where I got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you, tell, if you show me... A single safety study that compares vaccinated kids to unvaccinated kids and shows that the unvaccinated kids are healthier, have better health outcomes. I will close down my organization and go back to protecting rivers full time. Just show it to me. Mm. Nobody's done that. What they've done is tried to shut me up and silence me. And the one guy who was willing to debate me was um, was uh, um, Dershowitz. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have an hour debate that you can go look at, and you can see it's a civil informational debate where we are are politely and respectfully debating different issues. Mm -hmm. That's what democracy thrives on. Yeah, absolutely. It does not, you know, I love what you said about Alex. Listen, if somebody is promoting violence or racism, I think that is another cutout. You can say, you know, oh, we are a diverse society, and we're going to say you can't do that. Yeah. Um, you can't use racial pejoratives, and we're not going to let you do that. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, that's not protected speech hmm. because mm -hmm. uh, I think you can do that, and but we ought to argue about it. Mm -hmm. And other people who disagree with me ought to be able to have their word and say even racist speech you ought to be able to do let's hear that let's yeah. hear what they're saying let's I, mean, I, I think i think strangely i disagree with you on that well I mean, that, that's fine and, and you're allowed to right <laughs> and we're not going to settle it here and no. i haven't thought it through enough to even debate intelligently about it but i can see that i could be wrong about that i'll just know? say I, I want to i want to see my racists out in the open as opposed well, to the there ones you go. who, who see, are i think that's yeah. right yeah <laughs> i mean you you see the guy with the confederate flag in montana and all of a sudden you're like well wait a minute right this isn't the south what are you well, south you know canada right the argument is and and i love what Rosalind carter said about ronald reagan he said he makes keep people comfortable with their, with their racism, with their worst impulses. Oh wow! And I think that is one of the problems of having, you know, of just having open debate on racial issues on the, um, on the, because people do listen to what they want to listen to, and mm -hmm. if they're listening to stuff where people are openly venting, you know, race. I think that it, the divisiveness of that and the threat to our democracy is real. Uh, but, I, you know, I respect what you said. 
I respect the values that drive what you said. You're, it's a balance between the First Amendment and open free speech. And, you know, we have to balance those values as society, but let's talk about them. Now. Let's not just tell people to shut up. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Totally agree. Well, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., thank you so much for being here today. I want to encourage folks yes. they can check out your podcast, anchor.fm slash rfkjr. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Where else sh- should we send We're people? everywhere. Oh. I'm also the defender. Except Instagram or what? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm not allowed on the social media, but Instagram, on um, the defender, you just go to the defender or children's health defense backslash defender, and that's our daily newsletter, and that has all of the censored information in it mm. all of the stuff you're not seeing about vaccine deaths but also about all any kind of toxin any environmental issues stuff that is not allowed is impermissible on the mainstream media that's where we put it and we are exploding we're getting a million extra viewers a month mm. and then my podcast you can now get anywhere on apple and everywhere else um and uh, you know it's the one place i'm going to be able to speak freely and you know i really I really am grateful to you guys for inviting me on this show and giving me a forum. And I, my wife, you guys know my wife is Cheryl Hines, is an actress, but she has her own podcast with her best friend Rachel Harris, who's another actress. And they do, they look at documentaries and then they discuss a different documentary every week. And I know she's going to invite you guys to come on and talk about it. But she and I watched your documentary the other night and we really, really, really enjoyed it. And and it's part of a dispute between between her and me about how we run our lives because she is a minimalist. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm you know, so sorry. I'm like she, a gear hound. I don't know. I'm I want sorry scuba or equipment. I, what? <laughs> I want. I want the you know the surfboards, and I need to have a lot of gear. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm not happy. I, I'm a snowboarder. I'm just yeah. No, I'm a snowboarder. I got I got snowboarding stuff. No, I don't have an excessive amount, but I have it. <laughs> Yeah, it's really about you know identifying what is no, adding I, value I, to our I lives. Love it. And you know, my I grew up with my patron saint at the St. Francis of Assisi. And you know, he was the wealthiest guy in his town. And he had everything. His father was a cloth merchant. And he then one day, you know, he was he had given a, a bolt of cloth to a beggar who came in, but it was a very expensive one, and his father sued him. And they had a lawsuit in front of the bishop, the entire town, and he was very famous. He was a war hero. He was a famous musician in his town. He was beloved. He had the best girl in town. And he went into that trial, and he stripped himself naked, and he gave his clothes back to his father, and he said, you know, I am... um, he, he made an announcement to the town that I'm going to live my life for God on a spiritual path. Right. And then he went to the woods, and um, he he renounced everything. He you know he said every day you get up and don't make provision about how you're going to feed yourself because God's going to provide, and you need to have faith. And he did this for himself, but he inspired this um, this huge movement. Within a few years, there were twenty thousand people who had followed him, and he is credited with bringing an end to the dark ages, mm. and you know, and beginning the Renaissance of. De- of destroying the church's institutional hold over people. Also, what he started doing is realizing that everybody was illiterate. There was only a few Bibles at that time. And that people had to go to the priests 
get the word of God. They had to go to the priest, who had to go to the monsignor, had to go to the bishop, the archbishop, the cardinal, and the pope, and then God's word would come back. And he said, no, it should be accessible to everybody. And he started hiring painters to paint the biblical scenes because everybody was illiterate. Hmm. On the on walls of the churches, and those were the first Renaissance painters. Dante was, a, you know, Dante was a, one of the writers, was a Franciscan, and many of the original Renaissance painters. So it was the beginning of this awakening of humanity, and it was from saying, "I'm not going to rely on the stuff anymore. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to find my fulfillment by building character mm. instead of building crap." Yes, and, uh, yeah. you know I love watching your stuff, and I I feel a lot of us were born with empty holes inside of ourselves, mm. and that we try to fill that by taking things outside of ourselves to solve the problems, you know, internal problems that we have. Yeah, and that you know it's all perishable and it's all wormwood and bile, as they say in the Bible that. Everything that is enduring and everything that is meaningful comes from, you know, building yourself rather than accumulating stuff. Yeah. You know, and they're competitive things. You're either putting you're either putting your energy into building yourself or you're putting it into building your pile. Mm. And that, you know, there's this feeling that particularly in our country that you know, this is a place where you come to make a big pile for yourself, and whoever dies with the most stuff wins. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. and I love what you guys have done of trying you. to, you know, make some space in the public dialogue for, um, you know, for a different way of approaching life. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's I'm interesting. Really Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting how this is like. It's a very old answer, simplicity, yeah. but we have a we have some new problems right now that this old answer can yeah can help with yeah and and by the way it's uh ryan and i don't have any illusions that we're going to uh turn everyone convert everyone into minimalism Mm. but um we do understand that sharing our recipe has been helpful for a lot of people who i mean the average american household has three hundred thousand items in it that didn't happen overnight and also the letting go of everything doesn't happen overnight either yeah Thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, this has been this has been awesome. Thanks so much. Don minimalists.